Good morning. It's good to see you. Glad you all made it here safely. I feel like we are in one of those um, snow, snow globes. Yeah, yeah, it's really pretty out there, isn't it? Um, I believe what Victoria said about each snowflake being unique. I really, because I was taught that as a child. But has that ever been like proven? Like who's going to go out there, right? Well, no, this one looks similar. I don't know. It's just, but yeah, it is totally cool. So thanks. Um, we are all uniquely made, beautifully made in the image of God. Well, this week we are kicking off He Rules. Uh, it's a new sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And, uh, whoa, Hebrews. Um, if you haven't read it recently, it's dense, it's, uh, it's rich, it's mysterious. And to help us to get into this uh, rather unique book in the New Testament, I'm going to begin with a story. So several years ago, Beverly and I uh, took my mother-in-law on a canoeing adventure to Radio Island on Cary Falls. Anybody other than Chad know where it is? Radio Island? Yeah? Okay, good. A couple of locals. Um, Cary Falls, Radio Island. Oh, so good. Because the forecast that day called for lots of sunshine, uh, we knew that there would be little protection from the sun on the island, so we purchased that morning a canopy small enough to fit in our canoe alongside the three of us, our cooler, our holding chairs, our beach rug, and all the other essential canoeing adventure things that you need, right? So um, we got all set up on the island, and we sat down for what we were hoping and had assumed was going to be just a beautiful, relaxing afternoon. And it would have been, had it not been for a strong gust of wind that just lifted our brand new canopy high up into the air and uh, sang it crashing down to the ground and uh, tumbling it multiple times until it came to a stop in the water. So much for our protection. The canopy was so broken, I couldn't, you know, put it back together in its little carrying case. So we somehow had to figure out how to transport it back uh, home with our canoe, which we managed. And then I, I, uh, I took it, believe it or not, I took it actually back to the store um, and um, where I purchased it. And, and admittedly, even though um, they had every right not to, the person at the return desk listened to my story, my true story, and exchanged our mangled canopy for a brand new one. That's awesome. I felt like I was getting away with something. These days, I don't know if you've noticed, and uh, I have mixed feelings about it, it's, uh, it's really easy to return things that we don't need or want. Isn't that true? Generally pretty easy to return things that we don't need or want. I, I'm wondering if perhaps it's maybe a little too easy. I imagine that there's actually a significant economic and environmental cost to this convenience that we're all going to pay for one way or the other. I just wonder about that. But what about when it's not something that's returned, but someone that gets returned? For instance, when spouses uh, get traded in for a newer model, when children are just 
abandoned. Happens all the time. When aging parents are left in nursing homes alone. Um, When siblings just cut each other off. When friends unfriend friends. And who doesn't get ghosted all the time now? Um, It's very easy to get rid of people in our lives that we don't need or want. And I wonder if there's not a real emotional and psychological cost to this convenience in our society. It seems that um, it's getting easier even to get rid of God in our society. There's a, a recent report put out by the Pew Research Center. It was just released last fall. It's, and essentially, it says that Jesus gets returned often. In the report, it says that since the 90s, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, the nuns. Now, this is not going to be surprising for most of us because many of us have known people who have walked away from their faith. And for some of us, it's our own children or family members. I have known people who have stopped believing in God for a lot of reasons, for a, a, a string of unanswered prayers, for instance. It's pretty common. Just gave up because I didn't see an answer to my prayers. Um, a tragic loss, overwhelming, couldn't handle it. How could God allow that to happen? The overwhelming presence of evil in our world, just listening to the news. Or the seemingly constant um, barrage of news of hypocrisy among Christian leaders within the church. In fact, when the sins of a series of high-profile Christian leaders were exposed in my early years as a Christ follower, I almost returned Jesus. Now, according to a recent Barna group study, roughly 70% of high school students who enter college as professing Christians will leave with little or no faith, 70%. The study cited two primary reasons for this staggering statistic, and I wonder if any of you can relate to what the Barna uh, study showed. First, it says their faith is not strong enough to withstand the attack it is about to face from agnostic roommates to atheist professors professors, and a smorgasbord of debauchery to choose from. It's challenging to face coming in as a freshman. Faith in college is under constant siege, it says. Second is that their faith, and this isn't to criticize anyone here, but that their faith is too shallow or not their own. For most students coming to college, a huge reason they went to church to begin with was because of their parents. Uh, They have not yet thought through why they even have faith. Coupling these two factors creates a spiritual graveyard for most coming to college. I wonder how many of us have ever thought about ditching our faith in Christ Perhaps going back to once what we once believed or, or didn't believe. If we were honest, my guess is that many of us here have at some point along the way known this temptation. I have. I have. When I was a freshman in college, I was placed on a fraternity floor. 
as a new Christian, I knew that I wasn't supposed to smoke or chew or hang out with those who do. I knew that. So I declined invitations to do all of that and so much more. And as a result, my circle of friends on campus got smaller and smaller. And I began questioning if following Jesus was worth the cost of my loneliness. So what does all of this have to do with the book of Hebrews? (laughs) Everything, everything. This letter was written to Christians who are considering ditching their faith. In fact, there's widespread agreement among biblical scholars that this book was written to Christians living in or near Rome who had converted from Judaism, but who were second-guessing now their commitment to Christ. An alarming number of them were seriously considering exchanging Jesus in return for their former Jewish beliefs and practice. That's the context. If scholars are right about this, the person most likely responsible for their wavering faith was Nero, who was the Roman emperor at the time. Though Nero was only 17 when he was appointed emperor in AD 54, his power, along with his insatiable and insecurity, grew fast. Within his five, first five years as emperor, he had both his younger stepbrother and mother killed for fear they might someday become his rival. There's some insecurity. In AD 64, some of you know, a fire broke out in Rome, which destroyed a huge um, portion of the city. The evidence suggested that Nero himself, himself actually started the fire as a form of entertainment for he had already established a reputation for finding pleasure in others' suffering. A lot of people were displaced because of this fire, had no place to live or work. Another possible explanation for his pyromaniac pleasure was to make room for a huge temple that he wanted to construct in his honor. Either way, the evidence pointed to Nero as the one responsible for the fire. This is quite interesting the likes of which by no other center would see again until the fires of Dresden during World War II. That's how significant this fire was in Rome. So to to divert attention, it's, it's thought Nero needed a scapegoat, and he found just the right group. Any guesses as to who they were? Christians, yes. The Christians were already a minority group that was held in suspicion and despised by the general community in Rome. So it didn't take much effort on Nero's part to persuade the people that Christians were responsible for the fire. After forcing a few Christians to confess their involvement, and one can only assume that these were not voluntary confessions... Nero Nero continued to distract attention from his own guilt by making mass arrests of Christians throughout the region. Historians report that Nero routinely tortured these Christians for sport, including having many of them burnt alive on a pole at his lavish and licentious private parties. Nero, not a well-liked figure throughout history. Friends, we know it's never been easy to follow Jesus, 
But it's been more challenging for some throughout history than others, right? For the recipients of this letter, the book of Hebrews, the challenge was huge. They were asking if following Jesus was worth the cost of their own lives. The author of this book, who is never named and whose identity remains a mystery, but who clearly cared about this community of believers, devoted this book to remind these disheartened Christians why they should hold on to their faith in Jesus no matter what. Time and again, we're going to see that he used the Hebrew Bible, which is to us the Old Testament, but to them, the sacred texts that they grew up studying and memorizing, he used these texts to remind this community of the superiority of Jesus compared to all that they once held dear. The writer's point is clear. Though following Jesus is not easy, it's always the superior decision because Jesus is superior to all. Amen? Yeah. He rules above all others. It's with the same confidence we have that this was a timely word of encouragement for those who first read these, this text, it's, it's our hope and it's our prayer that this time in the book of Hebrews will be an encouragement to all of us as we seek to remain faithful to Jesus Christ, come what may. So let's dive in. We're going to begin looking at just the first four verses of, of this first chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Just uh, be quiet for a moment before we turn our attention to God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's just pause and pray. God, we are so grateful for your word and the ways in which it is so relevant to us, though written to people so long ago. Your Holy Spirit, God, brings your word alive, and there is so much for us to glean. And so, God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and then the faith to respond in a way that honors you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. How are we doing? Are we doing okay? All right, that was my introduction. So now we're good on the background of Hebrews. Now we're ready to dive in. The background is important, so, um, but we won't do that to you again. Okay, um, so immediately the writer reminded the Jewish believers that God has been speaking in a variety of ways to them, to their people, since the beginning of creation. That's how the book begins. In fact, in the creation account, the language used in the first chapter of Genesis is that of God speaking, 
creation into being. So for those of you fortunate enough to have signed up and attend a home group, we actually reviewed some of the ways that God has spoken to the prophets or to God's people in the Old Testament. So this is going to be a review for some of you. Perhaps you were reminded of the time when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Yeah, remember the story? To Elijah in a still, small voice. To Isaiah in a vision in the temple. To Hosea in his family circumstances. And to Amos in a basket of summer fruit. On and on and on. God was constantly speaking in a variety of ways, different times, through the prophets, um, to God's people. And many times and in many ways, the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke. God conveyed his message through various, uh, through visions and through dreams, through angels, which we're going to learn more about, through Urman, Urim and Thummim, words that I do not use very often, clearly, um, through symbols, natural events, a pillar of fire, smoke, and on and on and on. It's with the same creativity with which God spoke creation into being that he spoke to his people at many times and in many ways. That's what we learn early on in the book of Hebrews. But in these last days, the post-resurrection days, sometimes referred to as the messianic age, God speaks to uh, not just to a few special people, but to all who will listen through his son or by his son. The writer of, he of Hebrews made it clear that the same God who once spoke by the prophets now speaks by the son. The difference isn't the source of the message, but the means by which the message is given. And it is to this son through whom God now speaks that the writer focuses his attention, and this is the focus of the book of Hebrews, Jesus. Again, if you were able to attend a home group this past week, you may have discussed um, the eight truth claims or truth statements that we learn in the first four verses in the book of Hebrews. There's eight of them. We read them. We're going to review them just quickly right now. They are uh, God appointed the son heir of all things. Through the son, God made the world. The son is the radiance of God's glory. The son is the exact imprint of God's nature. The son upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. The son made purification for sins. The son sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. <sighs> That's just the first four verses. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, and the son is superior to angels. <clears throat> the writer's point is clear. Before returning Jesus, be sure you know who he really is. Because he's pretty awesome. <clears throat> All right, let's just kind of quickly review these uh, eight um, <clears throat> characteristics of Jesus. To be heir, to be heir of all things, is simply an acknowledgement that upon Jesus' res resurrection and ascension, he re-entered his rightful place in heaven as ruler of all. <clears throat> That's what that means. 
He re-entered his place in heaven um, as ruler of all. So this is difficult to understand. This is an analogy. It breaks down, as all analogies do. But uh, here's my best attempt at trying to uh, explain this a little bit. Last fall, as many of you know, I had to travel down to South Carolina to spend um, my dad's final days with him. And while I was away, I missed a concert that uh, one of the bands that I play in uh, uh, performed. Before I left, I gave the music that I was scheduled to play to some of my other uh, trumpet players so that that part could be um, played in my absence. Now, when I re-entered, uh, when I came back, I, re- I didn't have to re-audition. Or I didn't have to start back at the beginning, you know. And, or, no, I was given my seat back. Right? And everybody gave me my music back. <laughs> they were all kind. They welcomed me back. And I, so I got to play the same music. I got to sit in the same seat. And I got to be next to these awesome people, the same people that I had been with before I left. In a similar way, Upon completing his work of redemption on earth, Jesus re-entered his rightful place in heaven as ruler of all, as heir of all things. Well, the second truth about the Son is that it is through him that God made the universe. This is taught consistently throughout the New Testament. For example, in John 1, uh, 1 to 3, we read this about Jesus. He referred to as The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Apostle Paul, later on, affirmed the same thing about Jesus when he wrote this. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist... And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. With through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And that's 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And then again, Paul picks this up in Colossians 1, 16. For by Christ Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So when we think about Jesus, we need to think about him as creator, present creator of all that we know and sustainer of all that we know. This is the biblical understanding of Jesus. It's mind-blowing. Do you understand it? Get it? Easy, right? This is what the Bible teaches. This is the Jesus we worship. And this is why it's important not to return him. The third truth of the writer of Hebrews makes about the Son is that he is the radiance of God's glory. God's glory is a reference to his majestic presence in divine nature. It's very difficult for us to understand um, majesty and, um, uh, and, and, and a person's glory. Um, we tend to be somewhat disrespectful of people in places of authority. Um, but, um, but that's what God's glory is referring to, his majestic presence and his divine nature. Jesus, unlike anyone who went before him or any who have come after him, 
illuminates God's glory because of his own divine nature and his obedience to God the Father. Paul wrote about it in this way. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The radiance of God's glory, Jesus. The exact imprint of God's nature is the fourth of the truth statements about the Son. This idea is linked to the one above, but rather than leave any doubt as to the divine relationship between the Son and the Father, thinking that perhaps they're two separate beings, this truth affirmed that Jesus is the perfect representation of God. In other words, we see Jesus, when we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is the way that Paul wrote about it in Colossians 1.15. And Jesus himself couldn't have been made it any more clear when he said, I and the Father are one. Is this crystal clear? Yeah? Yeah. All right, good. Uh, we'll keep moving on then. The writer of Hebrews continued to make the case for why his readers should not give up on Jesus by reminding them that it is Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. When I read this, I sometimes think of Atlas, you know, holding up the world. Um, yeah, but get that thought out of your head because that has nothing to do with what Jesus is doing. The Greek word for upholds here conveys the idea of moving, actually moving something along toward an intended goal. That's the idea. That's the word upholds here. It's not just holding something up until it comes crumbling down. It's moving something in a direction toward a desired goal. And notice that it's no longer uh, just the world that Jesus is involved with, but it's everything. It's the universe. Look up at the sky at night, at night and, and just, just be in awe that Jesus is holding all of this together. It's pretty spectacular when you really wrap your mind around it. And he does this by... The word of his power, or by his powerful word, as some translations put it. The author revisits this idea again in chapter 11 when he wrote, The universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Just as God spoke the word into the world into existence, so it is with Jesus' authoritative words that the world is sustained and moved toward an unimaginably glorious destination. Tell some of your professors this. Let's see what their reaction is going to be. Yeah, good luck. Have fun. Okay, imagine how comforting it would be for Christians living in Rome in the early part of the first centuries to know that Jesus, not 
Nero upheld the universe. That would be helpful to know. And I wonder actually if today, if fewer Christians might struggle with fear and anxiety about their future or the future of this country or the future of this world. If more of us really knew and believed that nothing is outside the realm of Christ's control. Ah, I think we would be different people, better people. Of all the truth statements about Jesus in these verses, the next one, that he made purification for sins, is the one to which the author devoted most of uh, the time, uh, most of his time in this letter. So we're going to come back to this um, significantly later. He was clear about the significance of Jesus' sacrificial death for all humanity, for all time, and he was hoping the believers in Rome were clear about this too. As we dive deeper into Hebrews, we're going to keep seeing the author emphasize this point, that whatever had to be done about the problem of sin was done by Jesus. When he took upon himself on the cross our sin in exchange for our righteousness. This was huge news for me as a young believer. In Christ and in Christ alone, all of our sins have been removed once and for all. Great news. We're going to dive into that a little more significantly later. And all of this, by the way. The seventh true statement about the Son is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jewish Christians hearing this would have understood that this means that the saving work of Jesus is complete. He can now rest, as it were. And that he has been, again, restored to his rightful place of highest honor. Again, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in the first chapter of Ephesians. He said this, God worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is Ephesians 1, 19 to 21. The eighth and final truth statement about Jesus in these opening verses is that he is superior to angels. Of course, by nature, Jesus has always been superior to angels. The point here is that because of what he did, Jesus did for us on the cross, no angel could have accomplished And the rest of this chapter deals with why this is so and why Jesus has superiority over them. Should you be interested in learning more about angels? It's cool stuff in there. Angels. It's it's not easy. It's uh, following Jesus. Is that true? Not always easy following Jesus. Even without Nero... There are powers and principalities that are at work against each one of us. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 6. And these powers and principles are trying to do everything within their power to distract, to disrupt, 
and to discourage us in our faith with the aim of ultimately destroying it. And as we've already rehearsed, it seems like he's successful to some degree. These same powers and principles I know have been at work in my life ever since I gave my life to Christ back in May 27th or 28th, one of those two days, 1978, the year is right. And they are at work against each one of us. Let's not be fooled about that. I don't know about you, but there have been times when I've been tempted to return Jesus. Ironically, what has repeatedly saved me from giving into this temptation has been Jesus. I'm a Christ follower today. Not because all my prayers have been answered, because they haven't. It's not because all Christians are perfect, because they're not. It's not because of the promise of a full and eternal life, though that actually is true. I'm a Christian today only because of who Jesus is, period. That's the only reason why I'm here, is because of Jesus And because of who Jesus is, my aim is to follow him forever, come what may. The book of Hebrews will again and again challenge us to put our faith in Jesus alone. Why? Because he rules. The writer says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. While doing this, keep your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That was his prayer. May it be our prayer. May it be our life. So I'm going to invite the rest of the worship team up as we close in a prayer. Jesus, we are so thankful for bringing us to yourself. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for getting our attention and giving us the faith to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And God, for any here that have not yet made that decision to follow you, to surrender their lives to you, perhaps hearing today that there is no one better to trust and to follow than Jesus. God, I pray that they too would fully trust you, surrendering their lives to you, calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Father, we pray that you would give to each one of us all that we need for our faith, God, not just to um, barely survive, but God, to thrive, to grow, to mature, to develop. God, we pray that you would give us all that we need in this day and in the days ahead to remain faithful to you, come what may. Lord, thank you for the encouragement we're going to receive through the book of Hebrews. We pray that our hearts and minds would remain open to you, Jesus, as we seek to follow you and you alone.